Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest on today's show is Andrew Bunt. Andrew is an assistant pastor at King's Church in Hastings and Bexhill, and is the author of a couple books, Who in Heaven's Name Do You Think You Are? <laughs> Exploring Your Identity in Christ, and the recently released book, People Not Pronouns, which is a short book that deals with the transgender conversation. Andrew uh, works for, or I don't he probably volunteers for, the, the the amazing ministry called Living Out. It's a UK-based ministry that deals with questions about sexuality and gender. It's very similar to the ministry that I run here in the U.S., the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And I've gotten to know Andrew from a distance over the last maybe year or so and have just um, just found him to be an absolute delight, super thoughtful, super gracious. I mean, I feel like he's one of those guys that we find ourselves almost finishing each other's sentences. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to have Andrew on the show. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We talk about well, we talk about some interesting topics, as you probably know from the show uh, title. If you would like to support Theology in the Raw, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. All the info is in the show notes. Please consider leaving a review of this show and sharing this episode as you see fit through your various so- social channels. All right, let's get to know the one and only Andrew Bunt. Andrew, welcome to Theology in the Raw. Thanks for being a guest on my show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So for those who don't know uh, who you are, why don't you give us a brief snapshot of uh, who you are, where you come from. You, you, uh, you do have an accent, so we can start there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm uh, from the UK, if you can't tell. I'm on the southeast coast right at the bottom. I kind of say, uh, go to London, head straight down. When your feet get wet and you're in the sea, you're in Bexhill, which is a little seaside town, mostly retired people and young families uh, where I live. And I serve as an assistant pastor at a church here and also in the neighboring town of Hastings. And I also work for an organization called Living Out. Yeah. So uh, for those who don't know, I mean, Living Out is, I I, I mean, I hope I can say this. It would be, uh, we we have almost like a informal relationship. When I say we, the Center for Faith, Sexuality and Gender and Living Out to my mind, is just doing such amazing work over there in the UK. And everything I read, literally, I mean, everything I read by you guys is just amazing and so thoughtful. And you balance that, just that grace, truth, tension so well. So I just, um, I'm just glad you guys exist. So um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. So are you, so I preached at a church where Andrew Wilson used to be the pastor. I'm blanking on the name now. Is that near where you're at or? That's, that's Eastbourne. So that's the next Eastbourne, yes. So yes. it's my church in Hastings and Bexhill and the next town along is Eastbourne. Yeah, just 20 minute drive, drive down the road from me. Wait, is that where, who's the, who's the senior leader there? Uh, it's changed recently. A okay. youngish guy called Ollie Stevens at the moment. Okay. Great guy. I was thinking of a guy, again, I'm, I'm too, sorry. <laughs> it's earlier here than it is there. Um, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking on all these names, but there is a, um, oh gosh, he's written a lot on sexuality. Um, I thought he was a pastor near Hastings, but maybe okay. not. Um, oh gosh. Anyway. Glenn um, Scrivener is based in Eastbourne. Or Speak Life. He does stuff in sexuality. Anyway. I don't want to bog down the conversation. So, um, and you studied at Durham, right? For your in, yeah, in, yeah. So undergrad in theology at Durham, and then a master's in biblical studies at King's College London. 
Okay. Are you going to go on to do a PhD or, or do you feel I'm, better? I'm very open to the idea. Uh, okay. I've kind of gone back and forth. I've explored it sometimes. It hasn't come together. Uh, yeah, I feel quite open hands about it. I, I would enjoy it. I would love to do it in some ways. But I also think I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing what God's calling me to do. So wait and see how things pan out, really. Okay. Okay, cool. Do you have any like certain area if, if you could do a PhD? If, somebody's, if somebody said, Andrew, you are going to do a PhD. Yeah. I'm paying for it. This is your calling. What, like, what would you do it? Do well, it that in. is the dream, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I know. My, my first love is biblical study. That's what most of my uh, undergrad and masters was on. So I'd love to start on there. I have a weird infatuation with Leviticus and just in general, the kind of underdogs of the Bible. Underdogs in general, I think I have a heart for. <laughs> underdogs of the Bible included. So maybe something Leviticus or the Minor Prophets or something. Although increasingly, I wonder if I did do um, a PhD, if actually I'd do something around ethics, because a lot of my work now is ethics. Okay. I wonder if there's some work to be done around polyamory. I just think we're totally not ready for what's coming in terms of polyamory or, and or sex robots. They know the next big things. And I wonder if there'd be some good work to do around that. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. Occasionally, I think, would that be a way to go? And maybe it will be one day. I don't know how to, I don't know how to word this. Uh, when we talk about these things, it's just there's, there's no real pure way to word it. But uh, yeah, I've been very interested in polyamory and sex with robots. <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea, the 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 cultural phenomenon phenomena of uh, those two things. I mean, poly, um, oftentimes they get used as kind of like, a, well, if you if we embrace this, it's going to lead to polyamory, and all you know. Some oftentimes people don't think about the actual thing very clearly, or they'll cite sex with robots as some far out thing as just something that's like evidence that of the moral decay of society. Um, but these are two really interesting questions um, that aren't just fringe thing. I don't I don't know what it is how it is in the UK, but in the states, I, I've read several stats where uh, something like five percent of the population are or have been in some kind of polyamorous mm-hmm. um, or maybe an open relationship, which would be a form of polyamory, sort of. Um, yeah. And sex with robots. I mean, that's all we can we can go there if you want. I mean, I, that's the little I've dabbled in. My favorite in thing that. to do is to go to places to speak and throw in the little bombshell of sex with robots. And it's like, what? <laughs> students love it. We're teaching students. Yeah. They just love it. And it's just really a conversation zone. Because I think what I think, yeah, it is happening. The trajectory is moving. It's moving quickly. I think quicker yeah. on both of them than we than we'd expect and that most people would expect. I just don't think we're ready. And actually, we need to get the underpinnings or understanding of sex so we're ready to respond to that right. and not have quite kind of shallow answers to that, which is always the risk. Yeah. I think always, you know, the work I do now on, on same-sex attraction and transgender and stuff, I think we're always playing catch-up as Christians. Yeah. And actually, I would love us to actually learn to discern the times, uh, listen to the guidance of the Spirit of God and where we should be focusing and actually get ahead on some stuff so we can engage right in the heart of it not kind of five years after society's changed and made its mind up, we go, hang on a minute, we better think about this. What do we think about about this? So, yeah, that's why I guess it it, it sticks in my mind now, even though it's not quite here in the mainstream yet, because why don't we be ready for that point rather than react then? I read somewhere, it was a sociologist, a really credible sociologist that said, if the trajectory keeps going at the pace it is, talking about like pornography, talking about just technological development, which both of those things I don't see slowing down or like, um, and this, I think it was a female sociologist said, if things keep going this way by 20, I think it was 2050, 
more humans will be having sex with robots than with other humans. Unless yeah, pornography right. all of a sudden starts to die out or if technolo- technological advancement kind of like people got kind of sick of developing new things, you know? Yeah. <laughs> have, have you, have you, money, it, it seems unlikely. <laughs> very unlikely, which is a little bit frightening. I mean, and th- this was a secular yeah. sociologist who said this is going to have significant um, effects on society. And there's even moral arguments that yeah. are interesting to consider. For instance, what if the prevalence of ro- robots for sex uh, reduces child tra- trafficking, uh, prostitution, even adultery, um, all these things? Like, and <laughs> there's obviously several problems with the line of reason, but you people, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. This yeah, isn't yeah. just some crazy, weird fetish kind of thing that's taken off. It's like, it, it's going to be an ethical conversation as well. I, how have you thought through this? I, I didn't expect to talk about this on the podcast, by the way, this is really interesting. But. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think, I think you're right that what's interesting is there are very few good secular arguments against either of these. I mean, it's focused on sex robots and sex robots, really. There's kind of the general current disgust that many people would feel, but disgust wears off the more common something becomes and the less new an idea it is to use. That'll wear off. There's very little then reason for secular people to object particularly to sex robots. But as you say, there are some arguments some people will try to use at least to argue for them as a positive thing. And I agree there's some problems with that. So I think, as with all engagement with sexuality as Christians, what we need to do is go deeper. We need to think more deeply about what is sex about. And, you know, because that ultimately is always the reason for the difference between a Christian sexual ethic and sexual kind of parameters and a secular one. Yeah. Actually, it's not that God has some arbitrary lines that, you know, jump through these hoops for me and I'll bless you. Actually, it's no, uh, here's the grain of the universe. Here's the way to live to find fullness of life, because this is what sex is for and about. And so when we understand sex is about being part of the deep one flesh union of one man and one woman, which represents the deep union of Christ and the church, who are two and only two, that's important for polyamory, who are different uh, uh, in the sense of male and female referencing Christ and the church in a way. And particularly sex robots is the fact that sex is meant to be about the giving of oneself to another. Sex is not meant to be, what can I get out of this relationship and this physical activity? Actually, it should be, how can I lay down my life for your sake, who I'm committed to in this covenant? How can I reflect the, uh, uh, the ministry of Christ to you by laying down myself for your pleasure? And of course, a sex variable is exactly the opposite. The sex variable is, who cares about the sex variable? It's not about them, it's about me. What can I get from this thing? How can I take God's gift of sex mm. and make it about my satisfaction? <laughs> and actually, as with pornography, we'll find it's a never-ending kind of uh, tunnel you fall down because you're always looking for it satisfying you won't mm. because sex can't satisfy it's not meant to satisfy you in that long lasting mm. or total total fulfillment kind of way yeah. and so i think it has become a thing like porn where people go deeper and deeper into it it gets more and more hardcore whatever that will look like in that kind of context because it's looking for satisfaction in something that can never actually meet that need right. and the great thing is that because the one thing that could happen it could happen that with which we seem kind of a little bit of the sexual revolution in general and it could happen with porn, it could happen with sex robots, that many more people begin to realize this isn't doing what it promised. The sex revolution promised me, if I had lots of sex and minimal emotional connection, all that kind of stuff, hook up cultural that, that I'll feel great and it'll be fulfillment, it'll be self-actualization with my real self inside. And actually, if more and more people, as is happening to some extent, realize this hasn't worked. Mm. A, I don't feel overly fulfilled by all these relationships of lots of sex and no emotional connection, or all this porn, or this sex robot. 
And also I look around the world and I think, actually, oh, the sex revolution has caused some kind of problems like Me Too and different kind of things. Mm. It's possible that the fact we're going against the grain of the universe will become apparent and people will think, maybe this isn't the best way to use our bodies and our sexualities. I don't know if that will happen by the grace of God. It might do. Um, Who knows? Yeah, I feel like there's glimmers of that moment, but nowhere near enough to turn the tide. Right. Yeah, I mean, if <laughs> if we do get to the point to where sex with robots become becomes pretty popular, and if that doesn't satisfy, it's like, well, what what comes after that? Like polyamorous yeah, sex yeah, yeah, with robots, or what? I mean, it, it's hard to imagine a world, or it's easy to imagine a world that exactly what you're describing. One that when you keep going against the grain of the universe, keep going against the way God has designed humans to act, there's just going to be that 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 itch that's never quite fully scratched. You know, yeah, like it's just yeah. this. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? After a while, you would think it would just get tiring. Like, I don't know. Maybe yeah, we yeah. should rethink this whole thing. You would, you would think it might get to that point. It's hard to imagine society kind of having a, for lack of a better term, some kind of like conservative awakening. But maybe I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's happened before, yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can. Yeah, and you know, there are there are strong anti-porn movements among completely secular people now. Okay, who realize the damage of porn that's had on them. Um, and yeah, how much better life has been for them getting free for porn in lots of different ways. So that's an interesting thing because that is an experiential. It's not a uh, religious thing, a, a, a kind of worked through morality thing. It's just actually I've experienced the fact that this really wasn't good for me. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to break free from it. And so it is interesting that in that particular little area, there's a thing happening mm-hmm. on where it goes eventually. I mean, you know, I wonder blues are thinking, will transhumanism and sex robots merge? Will we get to the point where actually the next stage is electrodes in our brain, which always fire the necessary receptors <laughs> to fill that stuff. So we have it 20%. I don't know, but that's kind of, yeah. that's the crazy stuff, you know, that gets developed at the moment. And because we are people who are desperate for pleasure or desperate for satisfaction, rightly, yeah. we're made for that. Yeah. But actually we are just kind of on a quest for uh, the, set, the temporary sensation of pleasure yeah. in wherever we can find it, and sex is a big one we've gone for in our culture, in our day and age, uh, in, in the West at least, when actually the, the true satisfaction that can only be found in God yeah. is there and waiting, but with minds blinded, people aren't going to turn there until Christ acts. I, I wonder if, um, I just thought of this right now, uh, so it's probably incorrect, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean... If if you had like some kind of economic collapse, that would play a significant role, I think, in some of these things. Because, I mean, let's face it. I mean, it's like it's like Hunger Games. It's the capital. It's having too much, way too much money, way too much time on our hands, way too much comfort. When we start just, mm-hmm. get, just kind of just getting <laughs> numb and just just pursuing pleasure after pleasure after pleasure. But that really is a first world problem, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. people that are you know, working to put food on the table, if they can get two meals a day, you know, is awesome. And they just didn't, I don't know. It's like these kind of problems don't exist in those kind of societies. I don't think, am I, is that, would that be accurate to say? I mean, um, I I think so. I I don't, I'm far from an expert on that, but I think so. Yeah. And you do one, yeah, if an economic crash, if I know some major environmental thing, something that hugely disrupts, you know, COVID has done it to an extent, but disrupts even more. Because COVID is an interesting example. It has caused people, some people to, think more deeply, ask the bigger questions, question what life is about. If my life really is suddenly at threat, or, yeah. or a lot of the things I thought I would always, you know, I was running after to find fulfillment, I can't go and do them, has art caused me to ask questions. Interesting, certainly here in the UK, we've had so many people do uh, alpha courses, like exploring Christianity courses online. People, you know, most weeks at our church, we're getting people turn up who have 
maybe some church background, maybe not, have engaged with us in an online context mm. over the last how long it's been and now are with us. And you think, oh, it's interesting, this season has done something mm. and God can and does use, yeah, the unpleasant things mm-hmm. to disrupt us from that comfort and to bring us to that. Which I guess comes back to, you know, if you think, um, are you familiar with, what's the name, Yuval Harari's book, uh, Homo Deus? No. Huh? Which is about transhumanism. It's, trans- it's really, really helpful. So it's about transhumanism. Basically he's saying we as humans have dealt with in the West, modern Western world, dealt with the big problems that have plagued us for centuries and millennia, which, I'll forget the three, are, are war, famine, and plague. And you know, they're not completely dealt with. And interestingly, he had to deal with, does COVID undermine his idea? Yeah. But actually, if you deal with war, famine, and plague, which, to be honest, for us in modern Western countries, will not plight us to a huge extent, maybe with the extent of plague, but even if you compare COVID to how it would have been 100 years ago or how most other pre- or kind of pandemics earlier history being it's not much different once you deal with those all that matters is pleasure and mm. elongating life Interesting. and so he says our, our, our focuses now are not dealing with the great evils of war famine and plague our focuses are extending life and increasing our pleasure hence he says kind of transhumanism and stuff interesting um what's the I name forgot of that? I brought that up in our conversation what's the name of that book again i need, I need to check uh, that out. homo deus homo deus um, by Yuma Harari, and there's one called Sapiens, which he sees kind of history up until now of humanity, which I haven't actually read, oh, but they're meant to be very good. Sapiens, yeah, I heard about that. On Twitter. Yeah, too many books, Andrew. Oh, <laughs> too, too little time. time. <laughs> too little money. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> Before we leave Sex with Robots, I'm curious, again, just kind of thinking out loud, like wh- morally speaking, where would you place something like this? And I'm just going to, a kind of just theoretical spectrum of like, say, masturbation, porn use sex outside of marriage, maybe full-on adultery, like, um, have you thought about it in those kind of categories? Like, how, and people say, yeah, yeah. I don't know if, like, what, why is this a sin, and how bad of a sin is it? It's not an actual person. Um, you're not, I don't know, there's, I guess, different scenarios where yeah, people yeah. would think through this, but I don't know, where, where, where yeah. would you place I it? I haven't thought about it, and I'm always loath to <laughs> put marks and things. I mean, I guess, one thing to say is that some people to that question will just say all sins the same. I, I think we need to clarify that's not probably the case with the different levels of punishment given the Old Testament stuff. All sin is very serious right. and all sin deserves the ways of death. But I think you're right to say there's gradations. Right. I wonder if it does make a difference that it doesn't involve another person. Uh, so, so, for example, I don't want to say this, I wonder if it's different from adultery because in adultery, you are committing an offence against the other person and against their spouse. Here you're committing an offence against your own body. I mean, Paul would say, you know, committing an offence against your own body. Uh, in 1 Corinthians yeah. 6, he'd say, absolutely, a prostitute, I'm sure he would say the same with a sex robot. Um, <clears throat> but maybe not directly against someone else. Although, actually, if you are, if your engagement with a sex robot is attached to a fantasy of someone who is a real person, yeah, it's you are sinning against them. So, yeah. Yeah. Serious enough that we should be thinking about it, and engaging with it, and yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, yeah. I don't Teaching even our people well. I, and, and I don't want I don't want to even say I'm advocating for the way of thinking that's like, well, how bad is it? You know, like it's just kind of a a thin way of thinking about human behavior, morality, and sin. I mean, I like your idea of just like it goes against the grain of the universe. It goes against the the way God's designed us. It goes against God's intention. It's moving away from our humanity and not toward our humanity. Um, but some people like that more just like, is it sin? Is it not? Is it bad? You know, how bad is it as bad as yeah, this? Yeah. And I, yeah. Um, I think it's a, mis- it's a misuse of God's gifts of sex, which is not yeah. a good thing and probably sinful. 
and I think all the arguments for, you know, what actually if it's a better way of sex addicts dealing with their addiction and stuff. Yeah. I just think biblically we can say no, because if you, you know, Romans 6, if you uh, act as a slave to something, you become a slave to it. You do become a slave to the things we do. And actually even kind of, not biblically, just what we know about the brain and neuroplasticity and addiction and different stuff, mm-hmm. it just seems to me like we know that actually that's not going to be a lasting solution to, um, to a problem such as sex addiction. Yeah. What, I'm just trying to think of some secular argument. Like, what about like weenie? Yeah, you have a sex addict who's addicted to having sex with prostitutes. Could this be a way to ease them off? Kind of like the nicotine patch for people addicted to smoking. Just kind of like let's just ease you off. Give you this robot for a few weeks. Or I could see people making this argument, right? I mean, yeah, well, of course, <laughs> absolutely, they will. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, in a Christian context, it comes down to your viewing sanctification, doesn't it? And yeah. I think one of the things I've learned in my own life over the last few years is. God is incredibly gracious and takes us through process and journey. And I've noticed in my context, I've got a charismatic kind of context, mm. there can easily be a big focus on kind of instant change. Pray, click your finger, it will happen. How can that still be an issue? Biblically, and the language of freedom, we get freedom from these things. Yeah. I think biblically, certainly in Paul, the language of freedom is about um, freedom from guilt uh, and condemnation and stuff. That's an instant <laughs> thing in the moment we turn to Christ. His language for our, our growth or our being Christ-like, our living rightly, seems to me to be language of growth, um, of maturing, of walking out. It's ongoing stuff. Yeah. And I do think, in my circles at least, there's too much or there's not enough openness that that sanctification is a process and takes time. Yeah. And so although I don't know, I don't know off of my head what I think about that as a way of helping that process take place, yeah. I do think the general concept of someone's not going to go from sex addict to fully living out biblical sexual ethic overnight is okay, even for someone who truly is born again. I think that yeah. fits with biblical pictures of this. So, yeah. yeah, if I'd use that way of helping some of the situation, I don't know. But mm. the idea of the journey, yeah, that's biblical, I think. Uh, okay, so polyamory. Are you seeing polyamory becoming more popular in the UK? Do, do you see... Uh, uh, not in my circles. I mean, what I deserve... <laughs> not in your charismatic circles. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like, not, yet, not yet. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Um, no, I mean, I, I don't have stats. and I don't know if there are stats. There weren't last time I looked, which is uh, a year ago, and probably I was going to work on this for yeah, the, how common it is. I was aware of the stat you kind of talked about from the States. I think what I do see is it in popular media. Okay. Oh, right, um, right. And, you know, and this, is, this is how these things happen. Of yeah. You get the... Um, <clears throat> You know, same thing happening with the same sex relationships. You get the uh, TV drama about a polyamorous thruple, three people in a relationship, as there was one on the BBC, the main TV channels over here um, last year, I guess it was, oh, which okay. you start by watching if you have no exposure to polyamory. You start by watching thinking, this is weird, this is disgusting, this is wrong. And then you watch and you think, oh, they're such nice people. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh, it's so lovely the way that relationships are better. They all really love each other. How could we possibly mm-hmm. deny this? And you get the victim narrative where they came out to their friends and family and they all kind of rejected them. How awful that these poor polyamorous mm-hmm. people got rejected. So you're getting those kind of stories in, yeah, from mainstream TV providers in the UK, which are the things which will change public thinking. Mm-hmm. And suddenly what previously has been kind of just not done and not accepted because it's just a bit odd might be a sense of disgust about it it might just be oddness but there's no good secular arguments against it so it won't take long for that to change mm-hmm. the other one is celebrities celebrities are always the people um the trailblazers yeah. and a number of celebrities have said various things over a period of years now really about uh, monogamy not being natural yeah. um 
being in relationships or the, the Smith, the Will Smith and um, well, his wife and their family have said various things. There's kind of debates over whether their relationship is or isn't open and they think a bit ambiguous about that. Their daughter, Willow Smith, I think her name is, has come out saying she feels she is or could be polyamorous because she can love both a man and a woman at the same time. And again, especially for our young people, hearing things like that, a kind of celebrity figure, someone they look up to, that's all the kind of things that starts to normalize things. So I really think it's on its way, even if I can't tell you how common it actually is yeah. in practice in the UK at the moment. I mean, it's, I, and I, I don't like bringing up analogies too, um, too quickly or without caution. Obviously, every kind of relationship we're talking about has its similarities and differences from other kinds of relationships, but it's what you're describing. I mean, it's, it's almost word for word, the societal acceptance of, of, of a same sex relationship, right? I mean, 20 years ago, there was that kind of natural aversion. And then you start introducing it through media, some celebrities, I mean, Ellen and others coming out and it's like, Oh, we like Ellen and, and wow. So it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of more normal, you know? And I mean, do yeah. you, is it, and, and I'm not, I'm okay. <laughs> a few more qualifications. I'm not a slippery slope person. I'm not, I I'm really careful with saying this is like that or whatever, but I mean, but this is the all gender raw. So I like to just speak and think honestly. I mean, do you see very strong similarities between how society has accepted same sex relationships and, how it probably think, will do exactly the same thing with polyamorous relationships. Yeah, I I think so. And I likewise don't like slippery slope arguments. They tend to be a bit scaremongering, a bit just kind of complaining about the world. I don't think slippery slope. I think these are just all the natural, understandable outworkings of changes in our thinking that have taken place. Um, that's true. Same sex relationships, same or kind of secular modern views and trans or polyamory sex robots. Um, for sex, it's two things. Once you take away, well, once you change what sex is about you can change what you do with it. Mm -hmm. When sex stopped being in a Christian, as it's a Christian view about the self-giving of one to another in a covenanted relationship with two that mirrors Christ and the church, mm -hmm. and where sex becomes actually just a pleasurable activity, that actually the doors kind of open wide. Mm -hmm. Also, when you remove sex from biology, which is the key thing, you know, so mm -hmm. one of the key things that has happened is we've separated sex and procreation. In our minds, we do not associate sex with the production mm -hmm. of kids. Every culture before us until not that long ago, till the middle of the 1900s, I guess, yeah. largely would have done. When you had sex, it was a real risk. Sex was costly, as Mark Rignoris, or how he says his name, says in his book, Cheap Sex, actually, Cheap you know, sex, with, yeah. with, um, with contraception coming along, reliable contraception, sex is really cheap because there's not big risks there used to be. So once you untie the kind of uh, the link between sex and procreation, which by default makes it between two people and two people of the opposite sex, you kind of remove the problems. And what was fascinating in that TV program I mentioned about the polyamorous thruple is it all went really well to them to right near the end of the episode where so there was a couple and a young lady who joined them in this relationship. The lady of the couple became pregnant. And so you think, oh, you've got a problem. And they realized they've got a problem. And they realized maybe this relationship can't work because now the man and the woman who originally together are forever united by the fact they have parented this child together. And only the two of them have biologically, you know, in DNA, fed into this child, where does this other lady who's in the relationship now kind of fit? And I find it fascinating. It's like right at the last episode, you pointed out one of the big problems of polyamory, of actually two, three, more than two doesn't work in a sexual relationship, one of the key things sex is about. And what's so annoying is it ends, you think they're going to end with, they're going to have to split up so it doesn't work. And like the last shot, spoiler alert for anyone who watches this, it's called trigonometry. The last shot 
is them all in the hospital, hugging, kissing, it's all okay. It never is explained, how is it suddenly okay that oh. two of them are forever bonded by this child and the other one isn't? Which previously, you know, just before the birth was a great problem, but now isn't. But there's so many things, once you take away the link between sex and kids, yeah. basically sex becomes open to pretty much any form, context, relationship, mixture of people. Which is one of the reasons I think in our Christian teaching of sex, we need to reclaim the link between sex and procreation. You yeah. need to do it well and carefully. You have to answer the questions of contraception. We're very sensitive to the, the reality and the pain of infertility for those who experience that. But actually, by completely pushing that away, I think we've opened the door to some of the problems we have mm-hmm. uh, in helping our people to hold to a biblical view on sex. I've been thinking that direction too. I mean, probably like you, I mean, being raised and nurtured in a, I was in a just a kind of a non-denominational, non-charismatic, but conservative evangelical context. And, and yeah, it was, I, I um, never really put the two together <laughs> in, a, in, a, in that kind of like, it's like, yeah, sex can lead to procreation. And if you want to procreate, then you have the freedom to do so. But, the, but I never linked the two together so strongly. And then, you know, you start reading some more Catholic theology and you're like, wow, this is kind of, kind of different than the environment I grew up with. But then you take that back to the scriptures and just a Christian theology of sex and marriage. And, and yeah, I, I'm not quite maybe Catholic yet in this, but I, 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 I I see the lot. I don't. I see the logic of it, and I haven't been too impressed with kind of the counter arguments because they usually have to do with some kind of like almost secular version of human autonomy and freedom. Um, mm. So here, I don't. What do you think about this? I mean, I it, obviously there's infertility, um, but even things like what, what about like sex in or um, an old couple getting married, or say they are past the age of child rearing. I mean, nobody's going to say they can't get married if all, all <laughs> things considered, you know, but like, what if having kids isn't even an option? <clears throat> a really strong procreation argument would say, well, if procreation is completely off the table, then, then you shouldn't get married. I've never heard anybody actually say that, but, no, no. or, or even think... maybe to, well, there's the old age sex, you know, an old couple getting married, but also, what what about a couple getting married that they aren't infertile but they just are choosing not to have kids but they still say they're called to marriage? That one's a little dicier for me, but yeah, yeah, that one is tricky. And that you know, as a part of that situation, I also have the conversation of why, because it might be there's a really good reason. Actually, we feel such a calling to go to this far from place, and we just think it would be so hard to bring up a child while doing what God calls us to do there. And it, and I think theologically, I'm still not sure if I'm comfortable. I want to talk talk to that couple. I still don't know if I would be comfortable to marry that couple. But that's radically different to, oh, well, who'd want kids? Who's want, who wants the, the money drain, the time drain, the energy drain? This relationship's about us. Because then I want to say, no, guys, this relationship is there to bless other people, to be fruitful, both in the production of something, also the blessing of other people. I think with couples who are too old to uh, parent children or to conceive children, all those who go into marriage knowing that because of a, a medical condition, one of them, one or both, they're going to be unable to conceive. I think where I see a difference in a there between an opposite sex couple and with a same sex couple same sex marriage is their bodies are still orientated towards the production of children. Mm-hmm. Just with with um, two men or two women, that just can't be the case. There's there's no way in which their bodies, without the help of science, which has been developed, can produce a child that combines genetic material from both of them. In a case where you've got a man and a woman united in marriage. Uh, 
and their sexual relationship, even if they know a child is not reproduced, it's still the case that their bodies are created in a way which kind of points in that direction. Again, it's thing we're going with the grain of the universe. And well, with the old age thing, it's maybe different, but certainly with a case of facility, we the bodies might be orientated in that way, but may not always function that way. And we as Christians always have the best explanation for why there are some things that are not as they should be. And infertility yeah. is the best example of that. And this is why I think it's not insensitive to those experiencing the pain of infertility to link sex and procreation very firmly. Because actually saying sex and procreation meant to go together legitimizes the incredibly deep pain of people who experience infertility and who long for kids. Mm. It's saying actually your pain is totally understandable. Mm. Your t- pain is totally justifiable because something is uh, not as it should be because we were living a world that is broken and marred by sin and so sometimes things don't work as they should be and so with those people we love and we lament and we try and be church family alongside them mm-hmm. but actually we don't kind of hide the truth that sex and kids are meant to go together yeah. actually we say because that's true your reaction is totally understandable and we want to to love you in that yeah that's good yeah no it's yeah i think that's really that's about where I'm at with my thinking, I think um, it, it is it is hard. I mean, because it's this just goes against so much in our not just secular culture, yeah. but it's at least in the in the states. I mean, it's been largely absorbed by the church for for a number of years. And I don't so not actively pers- like it's not like the church is like pursuing this secular vision um, for sex, procreation, marriage, whatever. But it's like it's just kind of it's just like slowly absorbs it, you know. So I don't I don't necessarily fault I don't not fault but I mean I don't know it's almost like it just it kind of slowly happened it seems like you know where there's so much of a secular understanding of sex marriage procreation that just kind of trickled its way into the church Um, and this is going back to one of your previous points about the just the the deep need for um, what you were you're talking about like being reactive against the next thing we're always kind of playing catch up and one of the ways to get ahead, right, is to just lay a thick foundation for yeah. what is sex for, what is marriage for. Um, I, I like to ask young people sometimes, like, you know, oh, we're going to get married. And I'm like, why? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and it sounds rude or whatever. But I'm like, no, but really, like, oh, cool. Like, yeah. why, why do you, why do you, how do you know God's calling you to marriage? Like, what, tell me about that, you know, like, the vision for marriage, you know, and, and they look at you funny, like, <laughs> well, we're, we're in love, you know, and, and, not, and not to diminish that at all. I think the Bible talks about that in some places, uh, Song of Songs and others, but um, there's there has to be a deeper, more like yeah, kingdom yeah, yeah, oriented yeah. vision for what the reality why is God the feeling us. won't last. Yeah. You might get married because of the feeling of love. And I say that's part of the thing. But if you're not committed to loving that person who so sacrificed when those feelings wane, right. your marriage is not going to last. Right. And actually, your, your commitment in marriage is I'm going to love you as in I'm going to lay down my life actively for you day after day, regardless of how I feel. Yeah. And actually, that will maintain the feelings that the commitment of marriage, the laying down your life in active ways is the scaffolding in which you work on the feelings. Yeah. If you try and make the feelings the scaffolding of your marriage, your marriage will crumble because feelings come a day. One day you will wake up and they won't look so good. Or one day they'll do something that really annoys you. You think, you're not so sweet after all. Yeah. What happens then if all it's based on is your feelings? There's got to be something more firm to it. Yeah. I almost want to talk about mixed orientation marriages. You, you said something that triggered a thought. <laughs> but I would, just, just maybe tie the knot on polyamory for a second. One thing, so I think the, the, the key missing link between, well, let me organize my thoughts. Um, the, the 
a secular sexual ethic, it has to do with consent and lack of harm, right? If there's genuine consent um, and it's not harming anybody, then there's that's that's basically the framework. Um, so that would make sense. Obviously, polyamory satisfies those two um, those two things. But there is another point that often comes up, and that has to do with orientation. Um, that you know, once you start to introduce a stronger like ontology of sexual identity, that this is not just mm-hmm. what I do. This isn't just some choice because that that's a pushback. It's like, well, look, some people are you know gay, others are straight, some are bisexual, but polyamory, it's not. Like, you're just choosing to do this. But I don't know if you remember this. Dan Savage, a uh, gay, um, uh, what is he, a journalist or whatever, um, and uh, he got hammered when he said polyamory is not an orientation by a bunch of people. Okay. That, yeah. And yeah. as yeah. the earliest article I, can, I found is 2011 in a peer-reviewed law journal where somebody argued for polyamory as an orientation so you take the definite how we even define an orientation and they they, they kind of show that like this is very similar to how polyamorous yeah. people describe themselves and that see that's a key phrase it's not just a polyamorous relationship it's not just polyamorous desire once you start using the category of polyamorous people i mean i i I think that's going to be significant. We're already seeing that that yeah, shift yeah. in language to be more ontologically significant. Anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm and it's, that's have you seen that, this? That, and what that, do you that, think about that? Yes. Oh, definitely. And that is inevitable because another one of my key passions is because of the way identity has changed. Because now culture is constantly telling us that who we are is how we feel inside. Our feelings and our desires are who we are. Hmm. That is more real and more important than anything else. It doesn't matter that your body is orientated to have a sexual relationship with one of the other sex to produce children. Actually, if who you feel inside, you want to have a relationship with someone of the opposite sex or same sex or lots of different people, that is kind of who you are. And because we have said that with so many people and places, you now have to say a polyamory. Because if you deny that polyamorous desire is who someone is, well, then you also have to deny that actually uh, an attraction to guys for a guy is who someone is. But that message is being shouted so loudly at us all the time. The classic example, you may have heard someone else do this, Keller does it wonderfully, um, is Frozen. I love Frozen. Uh, but it is just the story telling our kids from you know, day dots that who they are inside needs to be embraced. She starts being the good girl, finding her identity in what other people say about her, living up to their standards, you know, staying inside, not freezing people to death, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the whole film is her throwing off that constraint of what other people think of her and embracing who she really is inside. And she goes off and sings that song, Let It Go, the, you know, the big anthemic statement which became such a big hit. And part of the reason it became such a big hit is that is what our culture believes about who we are. Mm-hmm. Let it go. I'm going to let it all out. I'm not holding it back anymore. I don't care what people say. This is who I am. And even if people back home are freezing to death because of who I am, I've got to be true to myself. Wow. Our culture has said that so loudly, so many different ways. That's just a quintessential example. That if someone finds, I love you and I love you, I've desperately want to have a sexual relationship, both you and you, well, then you do you. That's who you are. Then as Christians, though, we easily say, no, we all know we experience lots of desires that aren't good for us, desires which aren't going to be the route to fullness of life. No one really believes that what you find inside always is who you are and should be embraced as who you are. If we can't use it across the board, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it's not who we are. Maybe someone needs to tell us who we are. And from that, we know how to live. And and yet that internalized of identity is it's... it has been 
absorbed by the church as well. Sometimes not Absolutely. on the extreme levels, but it's it's uh, it's very prevalent. I, I just that's this remind this reminded me. You just did you review Carl Truman's book? His new yes, the making of modern yes, the, the rise yeah. and triumph of the modern self. I have not yeah. read your yeah. review. I'm curious because everything you're saying reflects a lot in that book. Um, yeah. I, I, just so you know, I liked a lot of it and probably agree with much of what he said. I think there's some some serious problems scattered throughout. I think there are more minor points. There's that one page that was just really terrible at the end when he talked about like celibate gay Christians. And I don't know. I just think it was, it was pretty bad. But it wasn't like his main point, but he did try to say, and here's yeah. another example of how, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah, anyway, no, um, cool. would love, yeah, your quick thoughts on that book. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, so he's tracing the, the development of thought and thinking that brings us to this point I just kind of described. The roots, yeah, he's and, showing like that the, this way of thinking, it's taken 200 years yeah, in yeah. the making, really. Um, yeah, and he's kind of pushing back on the argument or, or accompanying the argument I made earlier that contraception changed everything by saying thinking was also right. changed. I think in the kind of the tracing the historical version of thoughts, I found it hugely enlightening. People I have not read and we struggle to read so i'm very glad scholars like him helped me to do that i, right. I can't easily critique it it's, it was certainly very enlightening i think yeah i think and i don't want to be critical of this actually because it's understandable i think so some of the ways he talks about the lgbt community even though it's very kind of you know so as a same-sex attracted or gay guy when people talk indiscriminately about the lgbt community especially negatively just gets a backup it's like well surely by definition i'm in that crew yeah. and yet you're not describing me at all um and even wait, you know, the whole book is premised on how would his grandfather not have accepted um, the idea I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, but today people would. Which is a fair game is an interesting point, but actually the trans conversations moved on. Most people don't talk about being trapped in the wrong body anymore. I'm quite against that language. Yeah. And you just wonder, I, I don't know if it was read before it's published by anyone who is more of an expert in that particular area. Yeah. Carl Truman is an amazing scholar and it's an amazing piece of work. It just might have benefited from a little bit of a yeah. scan from someone who kind of and that would have noticed what you said. Um, and the other thing I said is I really hope the Publishers Commission a shorter, accessible paperback edition for pastors, yeah. which has more application. Because understandably, in a big academic thing, it doesn't need much application. It's probably a bit too much for most pastors right. in my kind of context. It's such good stuff. It'd be great if that is available. That's great. No, that, that's almost word for word my critiques. It doesn't seem like he's he's been really engaged in the LGBT conversation um, a little bit. And I, you know, looking at some of his endorsers and people he's getting mm. advice from, it's, it's, it's maybe one piece of that conversation, but yeah, I, I think it definitely could have used more nuance. And it's hard, you know, as an academic, but also as somebody who does a lot of more pastoral theology, mm. I, you know, I can, I don't know. I, I, I kind of go back and forth on that. Like in, in one sense, if an academic is doing academic work, it's kind of like, well, their, their language isn't going to be as like soft and they're not going to, you know, um, and sometimes, yeah, like going back to the analogies, sometimes using analogies can be offend certain people, especially the way they've been used in the past. But if it, if it is a good logical argument to refer to the logic of this thing and then this thing and test consistency, like academics don't, you don't have the right to say, oh, that offends me. I can't deal. They're like, well, no, we're in a seminar and you're some, you're yeah. somebody's pushing back in your thesis. You need to address it. You can't just, we're not going to, you know, coddle you. So I, so I, I understand that. And yet, I don't know, is there ever a place <laughs> to just do uh, academic work as a Christian with the LGBT conversation, given the 
history of how we've kind of butchered the, you know, the, mm-hmm. our approach to that. So anyway, again, just kind of thinking out loud and resonating with what you're saying. Um, with, with polyamory, I, I, I wonder, am I, am I right to say, I, I think that it could eventually be easier for polyamory to be accepted in the church than same-sex relationships, largely because there's a little more ambiguity in scripture to my, now, okay. So mm-hmm. my affirming friends listening are going to be irate that I even saying it like this, but <laughs> you know, well, no, there's ambiguity with same sex relationships, but they're, they're just within the Bible. There's kind of not right. I mean, and I know all the, obviously I know all the counter arguments, but I mean, don't have like a positive example or God regulating a same sex relationship. You don't have any kind of, you know, the the few times they're mentioned, they're prohibited. Marriage is always defined as male, female. Um, But with polyamory, more specifically polygamy, you do have kind of some ambiguity, especially in the Old Testament that, you know, um, I don't know. I could see somebody saying, well, it's just not as clear. So, I mean, once it becomes widely accepted in society, I could see maybe a bigger portion of the church being open to accepting it. That that's just my unpaid prophetic prediction. Have you thought about it from that <laughs> angle or Yeah, I mean it's interesting. The the small amount, and from what I've seen it's small amount as yet of uh Christian stuff or thing, stuff that's been written in support of polyamorous relationships from a self-identifying Christian perspective, tends to be fairly negative or doesn't want to use polygamy in the Old Testament. They tend actually to push back against that, push away from that, because it's not polygamy, it's polyandry, it's uh, no, polygyny, multiple right, wives. Yeah. Very, very so the, so, patriarchal, male-centered. Exactly. Yeah. And so what I've read tends to actually want to really critique that, and, and you know, I think there's some healthy critique to be pushed back there. So I, most arguments I've read haven't been from that. People more often, the two theological arguments I've seen made are that a, a thruple particularly better reflects the Trinity. Oh, yeah. So actually, they say if human, you know, so it's a bit of a kind of, maybe the image of God is meant about relationality, about reflecting God and the Trinity, or actually three is better than two, so we can better reflect God in that way. It's one argument made. Another argument made is actually the relationship between Christ and the church is the relationship between Christ, one, and you, me, and lots of other people. Mm-hmm. So actually, so people say Jesus is a polyamorous. Um, mm-hmm. And so therefore, actually, a, a polyamorous relationship just reflects the relationship between Jesus and lots of Christians. Uh, on the former one, the Trinity thing, I think it's important that scripture doesn't, to my knowledge of sight, particularly link sexual marriage relationships and the Trinity. I think it deliberately doesn't do that. So I, I don't see that in Genesis 1, 27, 28 kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think God was wise not to put that in because he knew, no, marriage about Christ and the church, mm-hmm. not about the three persons of the Trinity. General relationality in our being, yeah, okay, we're, we're made in the image of a relational God, that makes sense. But it's not the case that marriage and sex are linked to the Trinity in Scripture, from what I can think. Right. And on the Christ Church thing, it's just a classic individualistic mindset. Yeah. We so easily think. I'm trying to change my preaching uh, to, to, to recognize, because so often I preach individually. I'm preaching on Sunday on Leviticus, yes. Um, <laughs> the message of Leviticus is how can imperfect people live with a holy God? And God takes the initiative to make that way possible, mm-hmm. which means God wants you. Isn't that incredible? God wants yeah. you. The book of Leviticus shows God desperately wants a relationship with you. And I thought, that is true. It's wonderfully true. But actually, God wants us. God mm. wants the people for his name. Almost always in scripture, it's corporate. Um, and it's so easy for me, because I'm a modern Westerner in an individualistic society who thinks more of herself than I should, to think, yeah, it's Jesus and all of us, including me. 
actually it's Jesus and his bride, the church. Right. And so really, I think the argument that argues a polyamorous relationship is based on that is more individualistic than the Bible allows us to be. Yeah. Yeah, if you push that Christ in the church in that direction, I mean, that's just... It's just weird. Like, so you, have, everyone. you have Jesus who's now bisexual with like billions of spouses. Like, is there? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it goes, it goes weird. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if we want to push that the individualistic version of that to its logical conclusion. I and mean, clearly, Christ, uh, the church is a singular entity in that analogy in Yahweh and Israel in the old. Um, yeah, it'll be. Yeah, it'll be. It'll be interesting what what happens here. <laughs> um, <laughs> See, uh, we haven't gotten to your book, uh, Andrew. Uh, it's now, what, 45 minutes in the podcast. And you, uh, this is so hilarious. You recently wrote a book and didn't realize that it was already out. I don't know if I've met an author well, that was I mean, like, oh, my book came out last week. I didn't even know. I think it's not my fault. It's a very small, a really good small publishing company. Uh, there was a charity in the UK who produced these small booklets. Okay. And I, I think just because they're small and they're trying to do a lot of work, it wasn't made crystal clear to me when it was coming out. Yeah. Oh, I didn't hear. I didn't know. Yeah. So I thought it was September and excitingly entered the world last week. <laughs> so tell us about the book. What's the title? What brought you into wanting to write a book on such a non-controversial topic? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the book is called People Not Pronouns, Reflections on Transgender Experience. Uh, it's only a short booklet, as I say. And really what I hope it provides is a first stop introduction to the topic of trans, the experience of gender dysphoria, and how might we as Christians reflect on and kind of respond to that, which I guess grew out of my, my interest in that topic, my having the opportunity to think and engage and teach on it, which really started, uh, I guess, six years ago when Mark Yarhouse produced the book Understanding Gender Dysphoria, really helpful book. I kind of picked it up as someone who is interested in matters of sexuality and gender, as a guy who's same-sex attracted, as a guy who... Uh, has had a level of discomfort about my own gender, I thought it was a bit interesting. And as I read it, I really resonated with hmm. the experience of uh, gender dysphoric people and just what, what Mark was describing for two reasons. One, for a time in my childhood, there was a time when I very strongly believed that though I'm a boy externally, I was a girl inside. Really? I had this really vivid memory, for some reason a vivid memory of being my grandparents' porch, don't know why it was there, but of, of this fear that one day I would get pregnant and my big secret would be found out. Wow. I was a sheltered Christian kid, didn't know how these things worked, but I really believed that inside I was a girl and I might get pregnant. I remember thinking, I'm going to have to never get married and live with my parents forever so no one finds this out. And that abated, that went away naturally as I grew up, but always lived with this kind of sense of not really making the cut as a man, hated being in all male environments, always wanted to be the girls, Harbored, like, hated stank dudes, which is our version of like the pre-wedding kind of thing for the guys. Yeah. And always, always secretly harbored this longing to be invited to one of my friends' hen dudes with the girls. <laughs> anyway, all of this, when I read this book, I was like, I can totally get how mm. some people genuinely experience themselves to be of a different sex to what their body says. And then also I noticed, wow, this is an experience of people who are experiencing something that is difficult, confusing, unsettling, and where people in the church just don't get them and are not treating them well often. Mm. I was like, that's exactly the situation of same-sex attracted people hmm. even just five years ago before that. And I guess this thing, actually, we need to be proactive. This thing is coming, this thing is happening, and, and real people are being affected. We need to engage. So basically from that point, began to think about it, read about it, try to learn about it. Began then, people began to realize that, began to get some invites to speak in different places, because as you say, not many people are happy to or kind of feel able to engage with it. Long story short, kind of got to the point where I thought, and I think there's some thinking I've done that could form a helpful short introduction. And what I try to do is give a three-part overview or structure for a, a rounded Christian response. Because okay. my observation is often as Christians, we focus on a particular element of a Christian response, and actually we don't get the breadth 
that we need. So I talk about a heart response, then a head response, and a hope response, each one of which is needed, and each one of which I hope the booklet brings something a little bit extra to the conversation and to the resources that are already there. So the heart response is all about actually what do we feel towards transgender people? And, and just affirming the point that has been very well made, well made elsewhere of we need to actively love mm-hmm. and need to have genuine compassion for the genuine pain of gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And I've really gone at that in the booklet because still I hear stories of people in the UK who have horrific experiences in what should be or what are well-respected mm-hmm. Bible-believing churches. I heard one just uh, half a year ago at a church in London. A trans person joined really kind of get settled in, a person befriended them in a really lovely way of walking alongside them. When friends of the person who befriended found out this person was trans, they started picking on this person, telling them to withdraw, and they basically abandoned this trans person. Wow. And then they never went to church. And, and now they don't want to go to a church because they don't mm. trust Christians. They're being so hurt. And I was like, man, there's still a need for us to mm. talk about what's our heart attitude? What's God's heart? Yeah. How should our heart reflect that? What, th- then what, the head response. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. I thought you were done. Keep going. The, the head response, I then turned to, well, how do we think about transgender? How do we kind of conceive of this and gender dysphoria? And really there I talk about identity, but like we've done already, because my observation is in our culture, trans and the experience of gender dysphoria is so much an identity thing. Who I feel inside is who I am. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what the body says, what anyone else says. And you see that so clearly in the language in coming out stories and different things. I didn't think I'd seen something which directly kind of engaged with the identity thing. So... I talk about internal identity, like we talked about earlier, how our culture, such as Frozen, so clearly tells us that story, but how it doesn't work because our feelings, our desires, our intuitive beliefs can change. They're not a stable basis. They can conflict. What if I really want this or really want that or I really believe this about myself and I believe this, but they can't go together? Well, which one's me? Mm -hmm. And the big killer is we all know actually there are some things we might desire, which we wouldn't say we should embrace as who we are, or there are some things we might believe about ourselves, which we wouldn't say that's who you are and there are parallel trans experiences which mm-hmm. sensitively you can bring into the conversation and use there and so i say actually if who we are inside doesn't work and actually basing who you are and what other people think of you doesn't work because what if they change their mind you can't always live such a good life they always think well of you we need something different we need divine identity mm-hmm. so i explore the fact that we're given divine identity as those in the image of god and strikingly, Genesis 1.27, it's in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Mm-hmm. In the same way the image of God is a given identity by the fact that God creates us and he gives us that identity, the male and female is likewise given. Very next verse is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. There's something bodily. You know, yeah. How do you know if you're male or female? It's whether your body is, or what role your body is orientated to play in reproduction. I think you see it there. And so I talk about that. I talk about stereotypes as well. And my continued discomfort with my masculinity, I think, was about stereotypes. I just didn't believe I, I made the cut. I so didn't feel like I could really be a real man. But actually realizing, though, Genesis 127 says I'm a man because God says I'm a man, freed me. It gives me the freedom to be how I am. So the fact that I love Downton Abbey and musicals and pretty things <laughs> without changing who I am. That doesn't change who I am as a man. It's just how I am, actually. These things aren't kind of uh, influencing that. So talk about stereotypes. But then kind of you get there, and that's often, I think, where people stop. We've got a heart response, we've got understanding, and I think that it does mean that transitioning isn't the best or the right uh, option for someone, especially who's following Jesus, it's for its gender dysphoria. But then you're saying, okay, but people are then left with gender dysphoria, which can be incredibly painful and debilitating and difficult, we can't just leave it there. So I talk about a hope response. So I actually say, how does 
the way the Bible resources us to to handle suffering in our own lives and to sort of support other people who are suffering. Mm-hmm. How does that equip us to walk alongside some people who may, out of faithfulness to Jesus, choose not to transition, even though everything in them kind of screams out that they want to? Mm-hmm. So I talk about the Bible's big story, the, the explanation it gives us, the hope it gives us, the future, the role of laments in dealing with pain, the role of just being good friends to people, how we navigate painful things in life. And so my hope is that those three things together give us a full-bodied response that kind of engage with all the issues that are needed. And even though it's a short booklet, it can't tackle lots of the practical questions, it's hopefully a framework to keep in mind as we then talk about or think about those questions. That's great, man. That sounds like a, man, what a great, greatly needed book. And I, I mean, of course you can't answer all the questions. It's designed to be a short book, but man, we need some of the big books. We need, but we need the short yeah, ones yeah. too that, you know, that more people will pick up and can digest and just get that. Yeah introduction that's fantastic um so it's already out uh people not pronouns did you come up with that title uh i think so yeah yeah (laughs) that's pretty good (laughs) i saw that i was like i had to think about it like ah that's yeah that's uh, provocative not provides um what is provocative in a good way not not um challenging hopefully challenging would yeah challenging is a better word yeah and i think yeah a thread throughout it is that yeah and that's you know a heart of all the work I do is sex, race, and gender, actually, of let's not forget the people. Yeah. We so easily talk, we talk abstract, and pronouns is the classic one of the trans conversation. Yeah. We go abstract, and, and there's a, of course, there's an important place in those conversations. Yeah. But I know what it's like as a same sex attracted gay guy to sit in a room and be talked about, yeah. or to sit in Christian context and feel, excuse me, this isn't abstract contact, construct, this is my life. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. what about me? Yeah. So I think, yeah, part of it is trying to personalize it as well. Okay. That yeah. So going back, to, yeah, the parallels between. I, I, so I didn't know that about your background. Would, would you, um, did you? Would you say you I- experienced gender dysphoria, or would it not have been like, like if your parents brought you into a psychologist, would they have like diagnosed you? Did you have most of the signs, or was it not quite that I, severe? I think probably. Not, I, I don't know. I I I I didn't be trying not to talk about myself having had gender dysphoria. Cause I just don't know if it would have been clinically yeah. diagnosable in that way. I won. I think in this context, day and age today, I would have done. I think. I think because it was, I didn't tell anyone. I hadn't ever heard of anyone being a man chatting or a woman chatting a man's body. I had no box to put it in, and so I just kind of felt it. Decided to never get married. I'd live with my parents. It would just go away. It wouldn't yeah. be an issue. Dealt with it like that. Whether it would have manifested more strongly had I been in our context, where I would have heard those kind of concepts and ideas. Uh, I, I expect I easily could have identified as trans, um, and I, I think that might have aggravated. I wonder if that might have aggravated the experience of that at the time. But who knows? In some ways, because I've heard something similar from a lot of different, especially gay men, that, um, well, like for 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 kids, they, like sex and gender, to take the modern kind of way people understand that, they're kind of collapsed together so that boy, girl, masculine, feminine, they're all kind of blurred together. So it does make sense mm-hmm. that as a younger kid, and I've heard this from several other people who, as they grew up, they ended up just being same-sex attracted, gay or whatever. Um, but they said, yeah, when they were younger, it was a lot. So when they got older, they were fine saying, okay, I, I don't maybe resonate with a lot of the stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. But as a kid, it's easy to interpret that as I am a girl or I yeah. am a boy, you know, um, so I think that's, have, have you, in your experience with other people, have you, your story, have you seen other people say that that's similar to their kind of trajectory too? I think so. I think it's not a universal thing, but I think, yeah, I think anecdotally, yes. And certainly I'm aware of similar, although 
there are studies. I mean, gender nonconformity seems to be one of the right. uh, strongest predictors of same-sex attraction later in life. I think especially for guys. Not always the way, but especially can be. And the you know the the rate of um, guys particularly who experience some level of strong gender non- nonconformity, even gender dysphoria in childhood, mm-hmm. who then grow up uh, right. to be sense attracted is really high. I mean, one pediatrician once told me I think it's basically 99%. And that's not from a study, but their pediatrician observation was it's as high as that. And I think what studies have been done show that. That's right. particularly with guys. But I think what we're seeing in the UK at the moment, all the stuff about um, trans teens and stuff, and yeah. the number of now detransitioning yeah. uh, people, detransitioning young women, who are saying, actually, uh, I was a lesbian, or I am a lesbian, or I'm attracted to girls, right. and there was internalized homophobia or whatever, or gender nonconformity, and that led me down the trans narrative. I think we are also seeing yeah. the evidence of it among young women as well. Well, I've seen that concern, especially with older LGB people, primarily LG people, yeah. lesbian and gays, um, that, and I'm not necessarily endorsing this view, I'm just saying that it's a, it's a fairly popular viewpoint among older gay and lesbian people that a lot of the younger people identifying as trans, they would say, I think you're just gay. Like, I don't, and a lot of them mm-hmm. say, yeah, if I was raised in this generation, I would have probably been told I was trans or genderqueer or something too. Um, so that there does seem, I don't know. And, and I, it's, 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 I can't speak to it experientially. So it's just, a, I think it's an interesting observation, especially like, as you said, with what seems to be a growing number of detransitioners. Do we have any data yet on that specifically? Like people who would fit more the rapid onset gender dysphoria paradigm where there was some sort of like social influence in their trans identity as a teen and now they're detransitioning. It just seems like a a lot. But I'm just, you know, if what yeah. am I going on? I'm going on personal stories, friends of friends of friends. And their friends and their friends and then online communities and what seems like a, a new YouTuber every day that comes out with I'm detransitioning. But all of that's still anecdotal. Is that still 5% of trans-identified people? Is yeah, it 50? Yeah. Do we have any actual data on that yet? Or Not to my knowledge. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think partly in terms of academic studies to the UK, there's been genuine fear of engagement. I'm, I'm friends of a, an older guy who wanted to do, say, he's a clinical psychologist, or psychiatrist wanted to do some research on detransitioners was denied ethical approval and basically the a small print said they were scared what people would say on social media about the university so wait you can just I, can't do is it is it is his name james caspian james caspian yeah yeah. i've he read about that attacking. can you i i yeah, yeah. i read it somewhere and i was like wait so that actually happened i mean it's always you always wonder yeah. like i don't know is that really what oh no yeah yeah i've sat down with him lovely guy um yeah, worked for I think, 10 years in a private gender clinic with adults primarily, I guess, I'm not sure, in London. He's uh, yeah, a psychiatrist, so we do kind of you know, assessments of people, marks and stuff. Became very concerned with the lack of psychiatric assessment um, uh, and, and uh, you know, looks, exploration of kind of psychological interventions before putting people onto a social and medical transitioning pathway. Uh, came So resigned from his job because of his kind of concerns about are we doing the right thing and this is right for me to be involved in wanted to go and do this research at a, a uk university and was denied i think i think there was a, a different reason reason given on like the official paperwork but it was also made quite clear somewhere that basically it was a kind of reputation thing that was the issue wow. he then took it through um he challenged that ruling uh at in various courts i get confused the court system here it got quite senior i eventually went to the european courts i think 
and amazingly didn't win, which I do think, based on their situation, does seem quite amazing. Um, as he so didn't get kind of given the the, the permission. So hmm. I think the figures are missing because the academic research isn't being allowed. But then also I think the transitioners tend to well they tend to fall off the books. You know, if you stop taking your hormones and such like, you're not going to turn to the people who you now think forced you to go into them far too quickly, didn't give you sufficient support beforehand. Hmm. You're it's not going to trust them. So you don't go back. So the success rates look great. Look at all these people who are now living happy lives who never came back. Or they didn't feel they could come back because you pushed them in an unhelpful direction. And they're now feeling very unsure about that. And that's you don't have the numbers at all. Just so my audience can follow this, it's actually an important point because there has been a couple, I don't know, one, two, three, four surveys done on transition regret. And they usually turn back 1%, 0.5%, 2%, maybe 5% transi- transition regret. Um, but that's what you're pointing on, what you're pointing to is, is the, the methodology that has gone into that. It's a yeah. pretty shady. Just that, like, well, all the people that transition, we never saw them back saying, hey, I regret this. It's like, well, the fact that they didn't come back doesn't necessarily mean that there's been pos- positive, yeah. ongoing positive um, results. Um, and yeah. also, there's that kind of key, I don't know if you've heard, the kind of seven to ten year mark that uh, yeah. the first few years of after transition there's typically a pretty positive uh response but a lot lot of people have said that seven to ten year once you get seven to ten years after there's that's usually when uh, a decent number again where it's hard to even have the percentages but that's when a lot of the regret comes in but and and regret might not lead to detransition i just talked to uh, scott Mm. nugent who uh transitioned at 42 he's 48 now so yeah he's right in that six, seven year mark. And he says he wholly, I mean, so many issues with his, he had so many surgical problems and even ideologically uh-huh. he didn't, it was just a, it okay. wasn't, but he's like, I'm not going to detransit. He was like, no, I'm not going to detransition. That's just going to bring more problems. But there's certainly a level of like, yeah, I don't recommend this, you know? Um, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's uh but that's interesting that, I mean, it's sad really because detransitioners, are people right? I mean, come on. <laughs> in an effort to like humanize a minority population, yeah, yeah. we're dehumanize dehumanizing a minority within the minority. Um, yeah. And if we can't do research on what on this from a data perspective, like how are we we're not helping the cause just because it, yeah, yeah. a story might be a threat to somebody's ideology or something. There's two ways we can't protect people who are exploring the possibility of transition. And help them make a wise decision is this a wise thing for you mm-hmm. but also detransitioners tend to be left with very little help afterwards mm-hmm. um so one of the kind of uh working groups i'm involved with here in the uk which is basically a group of people clinicians i think pretty past and mostly clinicians saying how do we love trans people well and serve them well as a nation what what role could we playing trying to help this kind of same messy situation we're in and one of the conversations we're having is there's so little provision for detransitioners medically you know you've got a lot of medical questions you become like of hormones and stuff it's so hard and actually to access the kind of support they need. You know, detransition care kind of isn't a isn't right. a field of medicine. Right. So because beginning to think, what are the needs? What are the questions? How can we help that? But there's yeah, it's such a sad thing that actually detransitioners are the the overlooked people. I, I mean, a good thing in a sense is their voices being heard much more, which I think is good in terms of the thing yeah. of safeguarding young people especially. But I think their needs aren't particularly met, and and there are certainly many medical needs that need to be addressed by medical professionals. But I also think there's a 
opportunity for the church to raise up. Here are a group of people who are hurting, who are being mistreated, Mm -hmm. who many people are now rejecting, who are not finding people who will support them in this pretty much unwalked path. That should be our job, surely. Surely those in the outskirts, those uh, being pushed out, we're the ones who are meant to love them. And wouldn't it be amazing if someone due to traditions and they think, I know the best place I can go to get support and love is my local church. So my little visions, I'd love to, you know, that'd be an amazing thing to have. And that should be the kind of people we are, right? That yeah. should that should happen. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I was with you. I've got several friends that have detransitioned and, or aren't detransitioning. And that's a, man, that's that's a tough, really tough spot to yeah. be. Um, sometimes, like, the dysphoria is still there, perhaps. Um, and there's medical challenges. There's financial stuff. There's social like just the whole like because they are in most cases this community that celebrated them accepted them now see them as toxic and a threat and 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 i you know if i put myself in 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 other people's shoes i mean some detransitioners have been quite outspoken against what they would see as like ideological brainwashing and and have challenged and even you know in the case of the uk with kira bell have have um, had effects on kids having access to puberty blockers and so on. So if you if you if I just go, played if I just try to see things from the other side, I could see like oh my gosh, these detransitioners they're they're yeah. they're not helping us really why with their outspokenness. But um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's really helpful to have all, a range of different voices uh, being presented yeah. so that we can consider all all. Uh, all kinds of people, but um, Andrew, I've taken you uh, much too long. Well, not too long, but this is a little, a little <laughs> over time. But man, I'm so excited to read your book. Thank you for the copy that you have uh, sent my way, and uh, love what you guys are doing at Living Out. Can you give us some if people want to find you or the Living Out um, resources? Where where do they go? Uh, yeah, so LivingOut.org is our website, and we're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's under Living Out. Um, and then I'm at Andrew Bunt on Twitter and uh, yeah most of my stuff I'm living out on thinktheology.co.uk okay and you guys I don't know this this in 2021 you guys really cranked it up it seems like I mean you guys are producing all kinds of blog posts and book reviews and podcasts like there's just a a lot of um, really really helpful accessible and thoughtful uh, resources so thank you uh, for what you guys are doing and pass on my greetings to the rest of the living out team you guys are awesome yeah All right, take care. Thanks, Andy, for uh, being on the show. Thanks so much, Preston. Real pleasure.